Welcome to Council 4 Unplugged, the podcast of our Council 4 AFSCME Union. I'm Larry Dorman of Council 4, and we're here to talk about what happened at the Connecticut Legislature during the 2019 legislative session. Our guests are Brian Anderson and Zach Levy, who do great work as our union's legislative and political advocates. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Zach, for being here. Happy to do it. All right. Let's get right into it. Uh, I'm always aggravated at the uh, groups like the CBIA, Connecticut Business and Industry Association, and other organizations constantly uh, harping and carping about the bad business climate, which I disagree with. Uh, nobody ever talks about the workers' climate and what it's like for working people. And looking back at the 2019 legislative session, it strikes me that there were quite a few victories for working people, and, and that's a good thing. So maybe you could uh, tell us about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think you know what's what's most important. Uh, to, to remember before we go into the victories is that a lot of this progress and a lot of this uh, improvement is due to the work that we did in the elections. Um, you know, I always try to try to remember that it's a two-phase uh, process, that we have to get them elected and then we have to hold them accountable and make sure they do the right thing. Uh, but I think one of the, one of the big, uh, big issues was this was the first year uh, under the new rule where the legislature had to mandatorily vote uh, to approve a contract, and if they didn't vote to approve the contract, it would be rejected. You mean uh, a bargaining unit, a, bargaining a collective unit. bargaining yes, agreement? A state, state, uh, a state bargaining unit's uh, collective okay. bargaining agreement. And this year, you know, we had several go before uh, before the legislature, uh, including our new unit uh, for public defenders getting their first contract after being organized. Uh, long overdue, but great progress, and we were very exactly. uh, happy at the vote the vote results with that one. Uh, as well as an accretion uh, for into our judicial unit, 749, um, which added 125 new members, uh, which also got through on, on very good votes. Uh, but I think what's important for, for members to know is uh, who voted for it and who voted for against it, uh, because that is the direct uh, result of how they feel about your work, essentially, is, is, is upholding your contract. Uh, and I can tell you, if, if anyone was watching the CTN hearings uh, on in appropriations or on uh, the floor of the House and Senate, Brian and I almost could have recited uh, all the Republican Senate and House lines because they all started with how much they loved state employees, how much they loved what they did, but they just couldn't vote to give them uh, a wage increase that they needed or good pension or good health care benefits. Uh, so if you look at the vote totals, uh, every Republican voted no uh, on every state employee contract. Um, and I think that for, for our members that uh, are, are more conservative or might be on RTCs, I think that that's a great opportunity uh, to kind of talk to them and lobby them because the one thing that binds us all together is, is of course, our pay, pension, and health care and our collective bargaining agreements. Uh, as for Democrat, I believe there's only one Democrat that voted against every single one. Brian? Zach's right. The uh, vilification of public employees shows in what happened with the votes on the contracts that um, it, it's a sad thing that every Republican legislator voted against all of these contracts. There was nothing outside of the CBAC agreement in these contracts. Uh, these contracts are not uh, golden fleece contracts by any stretch of the imagination. They're simply providing a fair uh, wage to people for a hard day's work. And again, 
listening to the floor debate, the people who criticize these contracts use virtually no facts. They brought up uh, no examples of regular state employees being overpaid. It's, uh, it's just a sad state of affairs. Mm. But on a positive note, too, in addition to uh, working people getting collective bargaining agreements approved, there were some pretty remarkable accomplishments at the legislature. Can, and can you elaborate on a few of those? What, one of the things that is a milestone was the passage of uh, restored uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, workers' compensation coverage for police officers and firefighters and parole officers. Literally, this has been a 26-year fight. In 19, prior to 1993, all of Connecticut workers had coverage for what's called mental-mental In other words, uh, if you suffered a traumatic event that was shocking to the conscience, like, for instance, a mass shooting in a workplace, there was some ability for folks who showed obvious signs of post-traumatic stress disorder to get workers' compensation coverage. CBIA, the Connecticut Business Industry Association, and the IAC, the Insurance Association of Connecticut, were able to seriously cut back on workers' compensation, much to the detriment of workers. And they literally were able to destroy all coverage for post-traumatic stress disorder. 32 states have this, including some of the states that are the worst states in regards to treating their workers. Um, So we were able to get this restored uh, partially for firefighters and police officers in cases where uh, they... There is an incident involving death or mutilation. What we really would like to do is get this restored for Department of Corrections workers, for uh, EMTs, ambulance workers, with the mind towards restoring things to 1993. For instance, the victims of the lottery shooting uh, suffered greatly from a mental health perspective, seeing your co-workers murdered before your eyes. Those folks... Uh, were able to get no assistance uh, beyond uh, a a very cursory uh, amount of help. This would allow people who really are affected by PTSD, and PTSD is not something that's easy to claim. It's down to a science, and the psychiatrist or a psychologist must verify that somebody suffers from it. And if they uh, were able to uh, claim a fraud, they would be liable to lose their medical license. So it's something that, that in in states that provide it, is a very low-cost, almost no-cost coverage. And I also wanted to point out, and it's important for our members to know, that um, Brian Anderson, you know, when he says a 26-year fight, He's a guy that's been at the front lines of this mm. fight, really yes, trying has. to get it right and correct or wrong from 26 years ago. And this is uh, absolutely just one of the biggest victories for for working uh, uh, people, for first responders. And as we work to expand it to include more members, uh, it'll be something that we see that will absolutely just change the way our workers are protected. And, and Brian deserves a I significant agree. amount of credit for his efforts yeah. in that. that. That is great work and it's significant work in terms of trying to restore something that was cruelly stripped away from workers by big business and big insurance in the 90s. Yeah, it's very um, rare to uh, see something get repealed and then come back. And, and 
Mayor O'Leary from Waterbury and Pete Carosa, the president of IAFF, the firefighters, who's a Waterbury resident, really deserve a lot of credit, as does Derek Perot, our police president. Uh, there was a lot of negotiations through the summer and fall, and um, those guys deserve immense credit for this. Zach, let's talk about, and, and Brian, uh, two things, uh, two significant accomplishments the state minimum wage and paid family and medical leave. And Zach, why don't you lead off talking about what happened with the state minimum wage? The minimum wage was uh, a great victory. Uh, didn't always feel like it was going to be a great victory during the session, as, uh, as negotiations often do. Um, but at the end, you know, we're going to see an increase in the minimum wage over the next several years. Um, this will help bring all worker wages up. And, you know, during the during the uh, struggle and during the advocacy, you know, the, one of the things, one of the common themes uh, was, well, why should, you know, a burger flipper get $15 an hour when I'm not making that? And I thought, you know, two things. One, the other day I was looking through, uh, just flipping through different classifieds. You know, my friends are looking for jobs. And one of the qualifications for this job was a master's degree, which I hold. Uh, and I was like, oh, wow, this is probably a salary job. And the starting wage was fifteen eighty-two an hour. So this is not something that will just help the low-wage workers who are predominantly uh, women of color, predominantly single mothers working multiple jobs. Uh, this is going to help everyone's wages go up so that you know, not only are the low-skilled and, and, and uh, the people struggling to make ends meet the most will get a raise, but also the people uh, who should have had higher wages right. and have been getting depressed by this kind of race-to-the-bottom mentality uh, are also going to see their wages go up, which will only help our economy. Uh, this will also help our members because we have some members in the municipal side that still make uh, under $15 an hour. And this will, of course, bring their wages right. up uh, and help when we negotiate contracts as well to set a different wage floor than 1010. And this bill raises the state minimum wage to $15 an hour over the next few years, I believe in 2023. Yes, would... 2023. And then uh, we don't have to have this argument uh, after that, because it'll be linked up to the employment cost index, which is essentially that's important. It's a, it's a similar uh, similar to the consumer price index. It's very complicated, but roughly over the growth of years, it, it's basically as about the same as what CPI does. Uh, so we'll see. You know, hopefully in twenty twenty five, when it's linked, we'll see another increase for working people, and and just every year after that, uh, people's wages will be able to keep pace with their expenses and the cost of living. Uh, that it takes, especially in a state like Connecticut, which we have great services, but is a higher cost state uh, than, uh, you know, states in the South. Mm. And Brian, uh, let's talk about paid family and medical leave. Uh, it's, it's good news to report that Connecticut's joining the many states and all the Northeast states that, that have a policy in place. So could you describe a little bit about what happened? Yeah, we worked with the uh, Connecticut Women Education and Legal Fund, QUELF, and the uh, Connecticut Working Families Party to help pass what is described as one of the best family medical leave laws in the country. And every country except for the United States and New Guinea uh, have a paid family medical leave policy. So it just goes to show how far behind the times we've been. Like you said, Larry, starting with Rhode Island about five years ago, um, states started to pass family and medical leave laws. And we are the last New England state uh, to pass it. So it, it, it's great that we passed such a robust one. 
And what it does is provide up to 12 weeks of leave over a 12-month period for uh, paid family medical leave. There is a big gap between uh, women's pay and men's pay. And the, one of the reasons for this big gap is that women uh, are the child bearers. And when they're uh, just having delivered a baby, it would be great if they could have 12 weeks paid to be able to raise that child and bond with the child and help with the child's early crucial development. This law does just that. It's going to be a great net positive for working people in Connecticut. Uh, one of the things that was very compelling, we're hearing the stories from people in states where these laws exist who never thought that they would use paid family medical leave. Yet, they'll have a close family member who's struck with cancer or some debilitating disease where they have to take time off or where they take time off to spend those last crucial weeks with a loved one who might be in the stages of dying. Uh, those are very compelling stories, and it's great that Connecticut has now joined the ranks of civilized states and having mm. a paid family medical leave law. Well said. And of course, th there was a fight over the administration of, of the program. The governor was pushing for a private insurance company uh, to handle it. We, ha we represent members of the State Department of Labor who do the exact same work with the unemployment compensation system. So can you talk about the outcome of that particular piece of the fight? Yes. Uh, there was a strong push by health care insurers to try to get administration of the paid family medical leave law in Connecticut. Uh, all of the other states that have passed this recognized that when you're dealing with people applying for this, you're dealing with people at their most sensitive times after the birth of a child or during a long debilitating disease of a loved one. That's not a time when you want to have a uh, profit motive injected into things. Uh, we see the customer satisfaction with private health insurance is at an all-time low because there's a profit motive at the gate. When people want to access paid family medical leave, you want them to be able to do it in a fairly stress-free way. They need to prove their case. And all the other state governments have done this, have a system where people have to get medical proof, have to show from a doctor uh, that this leave is warranted. But what you don't want is a for-profit gatekeeper uh, who is overpaying their CEO by scrimping and stopping people from getting the, the paid family medical leave that they're paying for through their payroll deductions. We were able to come to some agreement that much of the most sensitive work will be done by state employees, our state employees at the Department of Labor. Payroll collection, adjudication, deciding who should get leave and who shouldn't, and the enforcement, making sure that employers come through with the payroll um, deduction money will be done by state employees. Also, uh, Department of Labor employees, if the department deems it, will be able to compete with private industry to provide much of this work. And if there's a level playing field for that, I guarantee you the government has been more efficient when you compare uh, private health care to Social Security or Medicare. Medicare and Social Security come in vastly more efficient mm. 
Most leaks, there isn't some CEO or upper class of executives getting whopping uh, pay and, and compensation for providing that service. So it's, it's a great program, and we're looking forward to having, like I said, the best law in the country mm-hmm. to help families. Zach, I want to talk to you. Uh, obviously, any given legislative session, we see hundreds and hundreds of attacks on working people's wage and living standards, um, and we could devote multiple shows to that. But one thing I did want to focus on and ask you to elaborate on, the state judicial branch wanted to privatize the work, the transcription work, the legal transcription work performed by court reporting monitors. Can you talk a little bit about what happened and, and why that was an important outcome? Yeah, it was a uh, a bit of a surprising fight. It was one um, that was tucked into what is largely called a technical bill. Um, and usually technical bills just kind of are what they are, what they sound like. They're very dull um, and don't really do much other than change a few words here or there. Uh, this one, however, uh, included language that uh, would have directly impacted our 749 uh, court uh, recording monitors by essentially allowing uh, the judicial branch to hire outside entities uh, to, to take the work away from these court monitors. And, and one thing to remember is that these court monitors largely are women, largely are lower paid, and do essential work because if you think about it, the work they do, the, the typing that they have, the transcriptions they use, if that case goes up to the appellate court or goes up to the uh, uh, you know, federal courts, they're still basing it off of the original transcription and that case and everything that came out in that. And to have that done by a private entity who doesn't know the ins and outs of how the court system works, who, doesn't, who, who might not even be in the room while that's happening, is something that, frankly, um, would have put a lot of our legal system in jeopardy, uh, which is something that is is concerning because, it, you know, our legal system, quite frankly, is a little bit uh, stretched thin right now, and our members uh, completely understand that with being understaffed. But uh, those members in 749 mobilized. Uh, they got together. They had a great press event uh, that you helped them uh, put together. And then, uh, most importantly, and this is a lesson that, uh, you know, members uh, should take notice of, is during the legislative session during a public hearing, they all came up and one after another, they talked about the importance of their work, just what they did and how important it was, how critical it was. And we were able to get that language taken out. We were able to work with uh, the judicial liaison uh, in the branch and negotiate language uh, that protected our members and ensured that this would not be happening. Um, It sounded like there were deeper labor management issues, but that's better taken care of at the table than some kind of bill that, that, you know, in legislation, there's always uh, unintended consequences, and we just felt like this was too important of a fight uh, to, to really let that kind of happen. And it's a great credit to our members for for absolutely showing up, uh, putting their feet on the ground, and really just beating back this, this attack uh, and letting Brian and I uh, have the credibility and the legitimacy to negotiate a good outcome mm. uh, with a different – with the branch. You're, you're right, Zach. Our members are our strength. They did a great job. The other thing that I think our members would be heartened by is how many strong friends we've been able to elect to the legislature, people who really care about working families. Senator Bob Duff did a great job uh, getting a bill through to help police officers who are permanently disabled in the line of duty 
to be able to get become economically haul. Uh, they currently aren't. They get about 75% of their pay, so they lose about 25% of their pay. State Senator Kathy Austin, State Senator Julie Kushner, uh, State Representative Robin Porter were strong advocates in the Labor Committee and Appropriations Committee to get our uh, agenda through. Uh, Joe Arasimowitz, Speaker of the House, a great labor activist. Uh, Matthew Ritter, the uh, Majority Leader of the House, uh, State Rep. Michael D'Agostino all came through strongly for working people and took risks to try to get a better life for the people of Connecticut. I know I've left some legislators mm -hmm. out and feel bad about that, but I, I think our members would, would really come across thinking that um, we've got a good government up there, some really noble people up there to fight back against CBIA and the Yankee Institute, the Charles Koch-funded groups, whose only concern is that employers are able to pay a lower wage. And every day, the lobbyists go up to work at the Capitol to try to lower the average working person's wage. So I'm glad we have this good, strong bulwark uh, fighting for Connecticut's working families. We're going to have a quick discussion about revenue before we uh, finish up the show. But you mentioned Mike D'Agostino, and it's a credit to the occasional bipartisanship that does happen there, that Representative D'Agostino um, and Republican State Representative Craig Fishbein actually uh, worked out a compromise on a bill that concerned the impact of the Supreme Court's Janus versus AFSCME ruling uh, a year ago. And maybe you could talk about it because that this is going to be kind of a continuing battlefield. Oh, absolutely. And, 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 um, you know, for for that uh, team to have negotiated a compromise, um, especially if you look at their AFL records, uh, I think was an absolute credit uh, to to Mike uh, D'Agostino's willingness to really get it done and, and make sure that these are protected. And, and, you know, credit where credit's due. We thank Craig for Craig Fishbein for coming to the table uh, and, and not spending 14 hours filibustering it. Right. Um, and it was able to pass the House. Now, this bill... Uh, would have just basically codified some of the existing practices that we already do that we lost in Janus, uh, and then allowed us to have just access to our members. Not saying uh, anything other than if you have an employee orientation, we have to be there or you have to let us have equal time to talk to the workers because we can't depend on management to give Nor, nor should we. Yeah, nor should we uh, depend on them to give management, uh, to, give, to give their union rights because at the end of the day, the less members know about the contract, the better it is for management. Uh, and this would have just been a common sense that would have followed a state like New York. I believe other states like Rhode Island and Massachusetts are also looking into passing these protections because it, really this is a, just common sense. It just helps protect the rights of unions and workers, and especially if you're a pro a pro worker, a pro union uh, state, that it. Um, you know, really makes sense to help help these protections. But unfortunately, uh, at the end of session, with about three days to go after it passed the House, um, we always say the clock is, is the worst enemy of good legislation because at midnight on June 5th, everything died. And that was when uh, the Senate minority leadership decided to file two, two dozen, I believe, might have been more, uh, amendments on this bill uh, and threatened to filibuster, and all of these amendments would have taken away workers' rights, would have lowered benefits, would have taken away our ability to negotiate, just really were direct 
uh, antithesis to the point of the bill and was just direct attacks on us over and over and over. Um, and it was a very tough call to, to watch it essentially die because of the clock, but all that means is we're coming back next year. Right. And uh, it, we have a great coalition with AFT and SEIU and CEA uh, really working on this together, and this is a full, full push from all of us. Uh, and if we don't get it passed uh, this year, then we'll, we'll get it done. We'll just have to make sure that we get even more good people elected yeah. uh, in 2020 and then keep pushing it forward. Look, the corporations and the billionaires and millionaires that funded the Janus case um, expected to steamroll us after that decision last year. Didn't happen. We're going to be dedicating a show about that very soon. But it's good to know that we're fighting also to make sure that through the legislative process, workers' rights are upheld and people should know what their rights and freedoms are. So uh, it seems to me that if you want to use the word disappointing, uh, I'll use it. I think that the discussions about in revenue uh, have, uh, have, been, have been disappointing. So, and that seems to be the elephant in the room. So maybe you guys, uh, as we close out, can talk about uh, what the nature of that battle continues to be because uh, revenue and fair taxes are going to be the answer to protecting public services to creating jobs, to having a good climate for working people, which is what we talked about at the beginning of the show. The uh, wealthiest Americans have been able to vastly cut their taxes through uh, the U.S. government and through state legislatures. Uh, restoring taxes on rich people would give a gigantic boost to the economy. When Bill Clinton was able to roll back uh, some of the... Uh, Tax cuts to George, that um, Ronald Reagan had put in for rich people, we went into the longest sustained economic recovery and some of the best economic growth America has seen. Um, when you have people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett saying their taxes are too low, it's uh, quite compelling that we need to restore some of those taxes. There was a push to restore the personal income tax uh, Governor Lamont was opposed to that. Uh, there was a big push to restore capital gains tax. We hold out hope that next year we might be able to do something to restore those taxes. There was a, million, there was a mansion tax uh, enacted <laughs> this year yeah. that charges a slightly uh, higher rate on tax sales of mansions in value of $2 million or more. That's a good start. Because when taxes for rich people were cut, taxes for everybody else increased. Uh, the tax that hurts us the most is the property tax. And it, it, as Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have said, when they get a tax break, everybody else's tax increases. So we need more work to restore those. Also, there's been a big attempt to cut the estate tax. Uh, one of the most fair taxes is the estate tax. It's not a tax on annual income. It's a tax on vast fortunes that are passed from one rich person down to his or her uh, family. So in other words, the people who inherit it have done nothing to get it. It's just a gigantic gift. So that's one of the best places, best times to tax. And we need to keep up the pressure 
to bring some sanity back to our tax code. And and I just want to uh, talk about that for a second because you always hear people uh, always talk about, oh, it's a death tax. Why? You know, what about the small farmer? That is a tax that applies to about 0.01% of people, which is incredibly small. When you talk about the small farmer, they're not passing on that millions of dollars. It's more like Purdue Farm. And you're talking about the Waltons. Those are the people who have just allowed their wealth to just continue to increase. And you look at the college application scandal, those kids are going to pay no penalty and become millionaires at the end of their life anyway. And yet they still had to feel a need to, uh, to, to scam their way into college. And that is this kind of just perpetuation of how the wealthy continue this system where they just continue being wealthy and hoarding their wealth. Um, but the thing I want to talk about a little bit is the sales tax broadening, which we did, um, we did somewhat this year, but there's still farther to go. That in, in our state and in our country, when we put in the sales tax, it used to be 70% we bought were goods, thing, hard things from stores. Now we live in a very different economy, an online economy. True. We can we yeah. now flipped where it's roughly about 70% services that we purchase. It's one of the reasons why our sales tax, uh, which is a very regressive tax, has had to increase repeatedly over the years because they're trying to essentially get more and more blood from this stone. Because as the consumption dropped, you need a higher rate to keep even staying even. What we should do, and, and, and Governor Lamont is starting to do this in the right way, uh, is expand more into services. Because one, uh, there are certain services that, frankly, wealthier people afford. Uh, yacht fuel is an exemption. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is one that uh, we found uh, most absurd. I believe they got rid of the exemption for horse boarding this year. Uh, the fact that that was exempted is not something that I think, you know, me living in, in a working class town like Willimantic or Brian living in, or not, sorry, New London or Brian living in Willimantic and Mansfield is something we'll have to worry about it yourself, mm-hmm. Larry. Right. Um, and I think that we need to continue to modernize uh, and do it in a progressive way so that we're not only hitting the people uh, that are doing things like just trying to buy basic living uh, basic expenses for living, but also for the people that are really making excessive purchases because they have uh, excessive wealth due to inc- you know, trillions of dollars of tax cuts at a federal level and essentially you know, being protected by the state and being protected by the federal government because that's right. how we've done with corporations. We've subsidized them. We're protecting their interests. We're protecting the wealthy interests. Right. And by any objective measure, our tax system is backwards in this state. Working people are paying the lion's share of taxes in the state instead of the, the wealthiest problem. individuals. Right. And if we reverse that, we can see not only stability in our state, but actual progress and a property tax to go down. So a city like Hartford or New Haven or Waterbury, instead of having high property taxes, can thrive because that's where we're having a lot of out-migration is millennials going to mm-hmm. these up-and-coming cities and, and these classic cities where there's a lot of investment, places like Boston, places like uh, Newark in New Jersey, which is turning around Providence, Rhode Island, New York City, that are starting to boom because their states have decided to invest in them. And that's really one of the things that we need to do is, is get a much more progressive tax system in here. Um, one way, of course, is capital gains. Uh, Brian, you know from, from back... Uh, when they put in the income tax, they cut the capital gains to make it equal with our top marginal tax rate. Now, we've never changed nope. from having that coupled, uh, which is absurd because capital gains, we've seen just more and more and more money go uh, away from labor and just, just simply wealth. Um, more people that 
are good at having an algorithm uh, and a hedge fund, uh, getting tax breaks and more money than the guy, uh, guy or, or woman push uh, plowing the roads or, or right. doing the hard work in the correction facilities. I mean, the thing here in Connecticut, I believe that we really we, what it's come down to now is that we tax labor in the broadest sense, working people, as you said, and not wealth. Uh, Brian, the last word is, is yours on this. Larry, I just think about the origin of this country. I mean, the United States was started because uh, regular folks were upset that an aristocracy ran the country uh, from England. And we've always, in America, been distinct in that we're opposed to having a slovenly leisure class. And we are going right back to that. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad that people like uh, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Nick Hauer, Hanauer, who are billionaires, are speaking out against the concept of a slovenly leisure class being in charge of a country and speaking up for restoring common sense taxation of the richest members of our society. There is no democracy that doesn't have a graduated income tax. Uh, vast accumulation of wealth leads to vast power, leads to dictatorships. So I, I think we've got to go right back to how our country started, right back to the founding fathers and their vision of having a country where a man or a woman with a good idea could rise out of poverty and, and actually become rich if they had a good enough idea. That's the kind of country we want. We don't want a country of, like I said, the slovenly leisure class that uh, kills creativity, that leads to vast economic uh, uh, inequality. I think we've got a bright future in this country. We just need to keep on, and Connecticut's certainly been a leader this year. Well, the two of you, uh, Zach Levy and Brian Anderson at Council 4, are certainly working terribly hard to make that happen, and, and your work is appreciated. So thank you for joining us on Council 4 Unplugged. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening to our Council 4 Unplugged podcast. You can find us on all major social platforms by searching for Council 4 AFSME. Our website is council4.org. My name is Larry Dorman, and you've been Unplugged. Unplugged.